Last time, we spoke about how the battling bastards of Bataan had to abandon the Abukate Malbin defensive lines and take up new positions along the Bagak Orion line. Now the Philippines campaign had begun what is called the Battle of the Points. We also went over to Borneo, where the Japanese were capturing oil fields and airfields in preparation for their operation against the Dutch East Indies. That operation would commence with the invasion of Amban, which was pummeled by aircraft from the Hiryu and Soryu. Last, we found ourselves back in Malaya after the disaster that was the Battle for Mar. As the defenders tried to hold on to Johor as long as possible, but despite their best efforts at tossing the Australians into the fray, it would not be nearly enough to stop Yamashita for very long. West Force crumbled, and the defenders soon were fleeing for their lives to Singapore. Many men did not make it. Now we will continue all of these stories, and much more. This episode is the Battle of Makassar Strait. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even start, I just want to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over on YouTube, where I have episodes ranging from the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. In the Philippines, the fighting is raging across the Orion Bagak line, but also for the coastal points where Japanese forces had made amphibious landings. The Japanese detachments had misidentified their landing points, ending up at Kuanan Point and Langoskawan Point, much further south than they intended. The mishmash force, including the coffee stained sailors and marines, were tossed at the invaders who were marching on the Lagoscrawan point. Despite their valiant efforts, they could not stop the Japanese force of just 300 soldiers from forming a beachhead. Meanwhile, the other force of 600 Japanese had infiltrated the Kuanan point, seven miles north of Lagoscrawan. Another mishmash force of defenders, this time Pursuit Squadron, Intercept Command, and Filipino Constabulary forces, totaling 550 men, tried and failed to dislodge them. By the night of January the 26th, Kimura sent a reserve battalion from Olongapo to help them out, but yet again, the force got lost and ended up due north of Kuanon Point at a place called Anyasan Point. What followed is known as the Battle of the Points. At Longoscallon, the sailors and marines probed the Japanese beachhead, but they were 
too disorganized and failed to achieve any results. Lieutenant William Hogoboom, who was commanding some of those forces, recalled, We could not hope to continue the attack, to even hold our ground with the troops at our disposal. End of quote. After their probing attacks on January the 26th, Hogoboom and the men were ordered to dig in and prepare for another attack. MacArthur then sent the 2nd Battalion of the 88th Field Artillery from the Philippine Scouts, who had been withdrawing from the old Abacay line to hit the west coast and help dislodge the Japanese from the points. One battery of the Scouts Battalion hit Logoskawan and another hit Kuanan. When reports came that the Japanese were sending even more landing reinforcements, on January the 27th, MacArthur was forced to order Wainwright to clear the points as soon as possible. So Wainwright sent some of the 57th Infantry to hit Longoscowan and some of the 45th to hit Kuanan. Over on Corregidor, the crew of a battery Geary of eight 12-inch motors were given the order to hit Longoscowan at midnight. They fired 670-pound land-attacking projectiles at a range of 12,000 yards. One Japanese who witnessed this recalled, We were terrified. We quail. Not see where the big shells or bombs were coming from. They seemed to be falling from the sky. Before I was wounded, my head was going round and round, and I did not know what to do. Some of my companions jumped off the cliff to escape terrible fire. End of quote. The results were so devastating, an observer on Mount Pukat reported that such large fires had been made on Longoscowan Point that he could no longer see the target. Even with the aid of those big guns, the defenders' attacks on the Japanese beachhead still failed. But then Wainwright's reinforcements arrived. The next day, they hit the point again, with the big Corregidor guns and now additional motors with a barrage that lasted for over an hour. The defenders attacked the beachhead again, yet still to no avail. Then when more of the 57th Infantry arrived, they began to take some ground, and by nightfall, two-thirds of the Longescowan Point were taken. It would still take days and the help of armored attacks to finally defeat the Japanese hold up on the point. 300 Japanese had been wiped out, and the Allies lost 22 dead and 66 wounded. While Logoskawan was finally rid of the invaders, the battle seven miles up at Kwanan continued. By January the 27th, there was a stalemate between the 600 Japanese and the 550 mishmash of defending allies. By January the 28th, Wainwright's reinforcements arrived, 500 men who quickly took to action, but found themselves digging in with yet again a stalemate. A few days of continuously probing attacks have been made, pushing the Japanese ever closer to the sea but it was all at a very heavy cost. They had around 50% casualties. This prompted MacArthur to throw the 192nd Tank Battalion 
from the west coast, and within two hours, the platoon with three tanks had emerged. When the platoon saw the dug-in mishmash team, one Captain Dice recalled, We found that the scouts had occupied 50 yards more of the high jungle above the bay at terrible cost to themselves. Their casualties had run at around 50%. The sight and stench of death was everywhere. End of quote. The Allies attacked and forced the Japanese into a 100 by 500 yard space on the end of the cliff. Then, as they pressed the attack further, they saw the Japanese rip off their uniforms and leap off the cliff. Some tried to even climb down. Even at that point, they were not done. Some Japanese managed to get inside caves within the cliff. A small allied gunboat came up and shelled the caves. Then they sent engineers with dynamite to be sent down with ropes and explode at the mouths of the caves. It would take until February the 8th to kill them all. Now that is some resistance. Back at the Oran Bagak defensive line, the 65th Summer Brigade were weary from continuously fighting but General Nara persisted to try and break through the eastern sector of the defensive line. Each attack he made was met with failure. On top of all of this, the landings on the western coast had also failed. Homa had lost two infantry battalions that he could not afford to lose. On the west, General Moriaka commanded the 16th Division he was ordered to hit Wainwright's 1st Corps on January the 26th. As the Japanese had done previously with the Abake line, they began to probe this new defensive line for a soft spot, and on the night of January the 28th, they had found it. The 1st Division, which had lost a ton of war equipment, and was in a bit of disarray from the retreat, and was still preparing its own defenses, well, they were hit by Colonel Yoshiaka's 20th Infantry. His men took a vantage point and pushed into the line throughout the night. Before long, Yoshiaka's force of 2,000 men split into two groups. One of these companies took up a position upon a hill 400 yards beyond the Allied defensive line. This became known as the Little Pocket. The other company moved east along Trail 7 and then further south, nearly a mile behind the Allied defensive line. They then took up a position in which they could block the north-south traffic along Trail 7 and 5, thus hindering Allied troop movements. This became known as Big Pocket, and thus the Battle of the Pockets had emerged. There was no way for the Allies to know how large the Japanese force was at Big Pocket, so Colonel Townsend sent two reserve companies of the 11th Infantry on January the 29th to clear out the area. Well, they soon found out it was not a small force, and Townsend immediately called for more troops. Soon, the 1st Battalion of the 45th Infantry came to hit the Japanese from the south, as the 11th hit them from the north for a few days. But the Japanese held strong, and soon dug into their foxholes. 
Allied artillery failed to smash the Japanese in the big pocket, but both the small and big pockets were encircled and cut off from supplies, and thus doomed to die without supplies. General Moriaka attempted to have supplies dropped on them, but in a similar fashion during the Battle of the Points, the parachute packs simply fell into the hands of some very hungry Filipino and American soldiers. Moriaka knew he had to break the defensive lines to get to the pockets and save those men. By February the 6th, Moriaka received some reinforcements, two battalions from Manila, and with these, he launched an attack. Shortly after midnight, his forces advanced down Trail 7 and overran a platoon of the 11th Infantry, killing 18 out of the 29 men in their foxholes. It looked like they had an opening, and thus they continued south, but the 11th Infantry organized a containing force, halting the Japanese, just 800 yards from reaching the big pocket. While Moriaka was trying to re-intensify his efforts to reach the pockets, Wainwright began to throw more men at them. And on February the 2nd, tried to use tanks against the pockets, but would lose a single tank in the process, making little gains against the big pocket. The next day resulted in another tank being lost, with similar results. It was also on that day, Lieutenant Willibald Bianchi was leading a platoon against two Japanese machine gun positions. He received a wound in the left hand, refused to receive first aid, and continued on firing his pistol. He then threw a grenade taking out one of the machine guns, and got two bullets launched into his chest for it. After that, he climbed on top of the tank that had been hit that day and fired its anti-aircraft gun into the enemy position until he was knocked back by its incredible recoil. He survived the ordeal and spent a month in the hospital before returning to his unit, where he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Quite a Rambo-like figure. By February the 4th, three to four tanks had been destroyed, and the attack continued to grind down the pocket's forces. Rainwright sat down with his fellow commanders to form a new plan, and it was decided that General Jones would isolate the pockets and attack the little pocket and then the big pocket, using what troops could be taken off the defensive lines. On February the 7th, the attacks began, but Moriaka had also began his own offensive, putting pressure on the defensive line closest to the pockets. The big pocket was hit with a tank platoon while the little pocket was being strangled from all sides by infantry. When the infantry closed in the morning of February the 8th, they only found Japanese corpses and discarded equipment. It had turned out that the forces in the little pocket escaped during the night, and now those Japanese units were loose behind the 1st Division's defensive lines position. Fortunately for the small pocket's escapees, they ran right into Allied forces in a horseshoe position. They were offered the opportunity to surrender, but they replied with gunfire, and all of them were gunned down to pieces. With the little pocket down, Jones took all of his forces to now overwhelm the big pocket, 
With word that the little pocket had been taken, Yoshiaka, with the big pocket, tried to prepare a breakaway of his own. General Jones' forces began to squeeze the big pocket as Yoshiaka's forces tried desperately to probe for the weakest point in the encirclement. Eventually, to the northeast of the encirclement was some dense jungle, and Yoshiaka's men, who had been living off of horse flesh and tree sap for days, half-starved and sick from two weeks of continuous fighting, broke out. Over a hundred of Yoshiaka's men were wounded and needed help moving. By February the 11th, Filipino forces successfully pushed in the pocket. General Jones wrote of that evening, quote, It was quite obvious that the end was in sight. End of quote. The Allies were still unaware that Yoshiaka's men had begun a withdrawal northwards where the Allies had opened up spots that allowed them to get past. Also on the 11th, General Jones had dysentery and had to be evacuated. Thus, Colonel MacDonald, his chief of staff, filled in for him until General Brocher took command on the 12th. But by that time, the fighting was almost over. Hundreds of Japanese were found dead inside the big pocket. By the morning of February the 15th, Yoshiaka and 377 of his men had broken through the Allied defensive line and made their way back to the Japanese forces, taking about four days to do so. General Homa had missed his 50-day campaign target. Three battalions had been effectively destroyed, and now humiliated forces were making their retreat for several miles on February the 22nd. To add insult to injury, Homa had asked for reinforcements from Tokyo. The battling bastards of Bataan had just given the Empire of Japan quite a bloody nose. But they were far from being in a good position themselves. Yet now, we need to take a look over at the Dutch East Indies. The Dutch East Indies campaign's main objective was to take the island of Java, but in order to do that, the Japanese had to capture key airfields and the major towns along the way. One of these were known as Javas de Hors, which in French means the outside, or under this context, the outskirts of Java. Yes, I am now giving French lessons. The Japanese had already tackled some of the de Hors on Borneo and the Celebes and Malacas Islands. The island of Java was part of the Allies' Malay barrier. If Makassar and Banjarmasin fell to the Japanese, it would threaten the entire Malay barrier. After General Sagaguchi captured Balikapapan, the Kume detachment was ordered to perform mop-up operations in the area. With that finished, Sakaguchi now turned his attention to Madramasin, which held the strategic airfield at Martapura, it was to be Colonel Yamamoto Keoe who would make the main thrust, landing ashore at Tana Grogat, which would be the first hit by the unit under Captain Okamoto Yoshibumi, who would hit the southern coast and capture the Martapura airfield. The Okamoto unit sailed from Balikapapan, hitting the southern coast, and on the night of January the 30th, Yamamoto's unit reached Andang Bay, 
Lieutenant Mikkelsen got a report of the Japanese landing at Adang Bay, and he ordered his 60 troops to destroy the town of Tanagrogat. The European families evacuated, while the families of the indigenous soldiers were prohibited from being evacuated. As you can imagine, this helped drive the native population straight into the arms of the Japanese, and many soldiers simply deserted to go help their families, and who could really blame them? This led many to desert, and by the time Lieutenant Mikkelsen reached the town of Tanyong, he would only have about five soldiers left. Yamamoto's unit immediately set out and captured the wasted town of Tanogrogat without any fight. By February the 3rd, the Japanese began its advance southwards towards Bandramasin. The trek was not easy, as they lacked any adequate roads, thus rendering the unit's motor vehicles and over 600 bicycles completely useless. They would all have to climb up steep mountains, where they were forced to make small log bridges to get over gorges, all the while beating off hordes of mosquitoes. Meanwhile, Dutch commander Halkima was given scorched earth orders, and thus he torched the city of Tanyong, Amarote, and Barabay. The governor of Dutch Borneo, Bauk Yang Haga, was outraged at what he perceived to be the premature destruction of the cities and its economic lifeblood. Thus, Haga sent an official complaint to Hein de Porten, asking for Halkima to be replaced. De Porten, notably, never was on good terms with the Dutch civilian government, but he did comply with this, and he replaced the commander with Major Dup. Meanwhile, Japanese forces were also approaching the town of Samarinda, where only Captain Montenero's force was tasked with delaying actions to try and hold Samarinda Airfield No. 2 as long as possible. To add to Montenero's misery, the Kume detachment had already captured the oil fields at Sanga Sanga, and now they were ready to continue their advance on the town of Samarinda. By January the 31st, Montenero's force received reports that the Japanese were advancing from Palikapapan towards the town of Mentawir, which forced Montenero to move his HQ from Sangasanga to the town of Loa Nyan. While he moved his HQ, he also sent a small force of 80 men under Sergeant Major Shrada to destroy Sangasanga and inflict as many casualties upon the incoming Japanese as possible. Sanda's forces skirmished with the Kume detachment, but almost immediately he lost control of his four brigades, and before long they all scattered in disarray westwards towards Lo Nyan. Sanda informed Montenero of the incoming Kume detachment, and on February the 2nd, the Kume detachment reached Lo Nyan and engaged the defenders. Montenero's men were beaten back and now he had to move his HQ to Tengerong and continue to try and delay the Japanese advance. Despite their best efforts, the Kume detachment were hot on their heels. To help with the delaying action, Maltenero took the Gouvernance Marine ship, Triton, moored at Tengerong, and outfitted it with a light gun and some machine guns, and rode up the river to Lanyan, 
firing upon the Kameh detachment. After five hours, the ship returned ridden with bullet holes, but the captain, Lieutenant Schelzen, reported that they had inflicted heavy casualties upon the Japanese. The Japanese advanced on February the 8th towards Tengarong, but found no Dutch forces at Tengarong, as Montenero had yet again moved his HQ, this time to the town of Vienna Baru. Montenero sent the Triton to hit the Japanese at Tengarong on February the 10th, but this time the Japanese really shot it up, and many of its civilians' crew jumped overboard in a panic. A 20-minute firefight raged, but Captain Shelton managed to keep the ship in one piece. Unfortunately, seeing the civilians jump overboard hurt the Dutch morale, and more and more soldiers began deserting their posts, fleeing to find their families in Samarinda. By February the 15th, Montenero had only three weakly armed combat vessels to delay any attacks that would come via the river, such as the Mahakam, Benenlands, and Triton. Montenero ordered the soldiers' families to evacuate further westwards in hopes of preventing further desertions. Meanwhile, Yamamoto's men were marching on Banjarmasin and having a hell of a time doing so. As I had mentioned, there was no real roads, nor bridges in the thick jungle-covered territory. The Japanese had relied heavily upon bicycles for transport, but here, their 600 bicycles were of no use, and thus it was a really slow slog. By February the 7th, Yamamoto's forces reached Kandagan, where Lieutenant Remert was commanding two brigades armed with Matson machine guns given orders to delay the Japanese as long as possible. The point they would delay the Japanese was at the Kandagan-Martapora Road. In the meantime, a force led by Lieutenant Van der Pol were destroying the small airfield at the town of Dayo, and having completed that, they eventually met up with Remert's men. Unfortunately, der Pol's indigenous soldiers and field police they deserted him, and he only showed up with about five men in the end. They combined their forces and took up defensive positions to protect the Olin airfield. But by this point, most of the surrounding small airfields and oil fields were destroyed to prevent the Japanese from using them, and the evacuation of Bajramasin was well underway. Meanwhile, the Okamoto unit had captured the port of Kotobara, and was continuing southwards to land at Banjarmasin by February the 8th. If they managed to pull this off, they would effectively cut off the escape of the defenders. However, they would never get the chance as the Dutch troops and civilians were evacuating aboard ships Irene and Otto. Halkima was supposed to be relieved of command by this point by Dupe, as we had said. But as Dupe's plane reached the coast of Borneo, they saw large fires at the mouth of the Brito River, where Banjarmasin was near. Dupe tried to make radio contact with the station at the Olin airfield, but he got no response, and thus he returned to Surabaya. Halkima, meanwhile, had driven to Olin airfield to hand over command, only to see Dupe's plane circle around and leave. 
Thus, Halkima decided to drive in the direction of Takizong, near the mouth of the Brito River, where he and his staff received a telegram ordering them to sail west to Kota Wirigen. Once Halkima got to Kota Wirigen, he, alongside his other non-essential staff, left by plane for Java by February the 12th, leaving behind Captain Van Beek to watch over the airfield there. Back at the Olen airfield, the small Dutch force was still waiting for Dupe to arrive. Unaware, he completely bailed. By February the 9th, the force simply left because the native population was so pissed off with all the scorched earth operations that the Dutch figured they might attack them. If not, they might lead the Japanese to them. They would eventually sail off themselves alongside 180 Dutch civilians to Madura. Yamamoto's unit finally made it out of the mosquito-infested jungle hell in the pursuit of the Dutch, only to find zero resistance at the Orland airfield. Further marching that night led them to capture Banjarmasin without a fight as well. While Yamamoto's men certainly had a light time actually fighting the Dutch, they certainly suffered at the hands of another enemy, mosquitoes. Around 80% of Yamamoto's forces were stricken with malaria, around 800 men, of which 9 died of sickness. Meanwhile, back on Amban, the Eastern Detachment continued their conquest of the island. General Ito, had captured the town of Ambon on February the 1st, forcing the Dutch commander, Kapitz, to surrender his remaining forces in the Paso area. Over 800 Dutch soldiers would surrender, and Joseph Kapitz sent a note to Lieutenant Colonel Scott, urging him to do the same. But that message, it took two days to be received. This meant the Australians had fought for another two more days, the Australians positioned at Kudamati received a few Dutch personnel fleeing Paso, and Scott soon ordered a withdrawal of his forces to Yeri. On February the 2nd, the Australian force on Nona Plateau, commanded by Lieutenant Bill Jenkins, was encircled. Lieutenant Jenkins at the same time found out that the Dutch had surrendered, and thus he surrendered his forces as well. He then asked the Japanese if he could help find Lieutenant Colonel Scott to do the same. Lieutenant Jenkins found Scott at Erie on February the 3rd, who surrendered in turn. After the Battle of Ambon, 300 prisoners were taken to the woods near the village of Tawiri, near the Laha airfield. The Japanese troops dug two graves, both six yards in diameter and three yards wide. On the late afternoon of February the 9th, Rear Admiral Kochiro Hatakeyima ordered 300 Dutch and Australian prisoners to be brought to the site and made to kneel one by one in front of the open pits. Warrant Officer Kakurataro Sasaki was the first to behead a prisoner with a katana. Four crew members of the number no. 9 minesweeper eagerly stepped forward to get revenge on the next four prisoners. As the light faded from the sky, torches were shown on the necks of the victims 
to guide the swordsman's aims. 85 prisoners were killed that day. Two weeks later, a further 227 were killed in a same fashion. Around 405 out of 582 of the Australians captured on Ambon would die before the end of the war. They died of overwork, malnutrition, disease, and abuse. After the war, in 1946, Rear Admiral Katakiyama would be sentenced to be hanged at the Melbourne War Crimes Trial, but would die shortly before. With Ambon now firmly under Japanese hands, they started to prepare for the invasion of the island of Timor. The Japanese held Balikipapin, Tarakan, the Celebes, Manado, Kandari, Banjarmasin, and their associated oil and port facilities. To gain full control over the Makassar Strait, all they required now was to capture Makassar. Abdicom was very worried about the rapid expansion of the Japanese throughout the Pacific. The main Allied naval base at Surabaya was now within range of Japanese aircraft since the fall of Kendari. The base was pummeled by Japanese aircraft on a daily basis from that point on. As Ambon fell, the Americans began feeding P-40 pursuit groups into Java. Many of the pilots were Philippine veterans and raw recruits straight from the United States. The Dutch made them very welcomed. As George Kisser recalled, The Dutch assisted us in every way possible, furnishing guards on the field, food and medicine. Living conditions were not too bad. We had nice quarters, the food was not good, but sufficient, and altogether everything was as good as could be expected considering the supply situation at this stage of the war. End of quote. Despite the warm welcome, the American fighters were still small in number, too few to make much of a difference. By February the 1st, there were something like 30 P-40s and about 45 pilots in Java. Now back in January, Admiral Hart organized his surface fleet into ABDA, striking force under the command of Rear Admiral Glassford. The force was making several raids in January, such as the one we mentioned in a previous episode at Balakipapin, resulting in an Allied tactical victory. Admiral Hart would be recalled to the United States on his own recommendations, and Rear Admiral Carol Dorman would take command of the ABDA striking force. At this point, they had two Dutch cruisers, Diruta, the flagship, and Trump, two American cruisers, Houston and Marblehead, seven American destroyers, and three Dutch destroyers. On February the 1st, the Allied command received reconnaissance information that a Japanese invasion force of 20 troop transports, three cruisers, and 10 destroyers were preparing to depart from Balikapapan. On February the 3rd, Dorman gathered the forces east of Surabaya, preparing for a sortie against the enemy. Unfortunately for them, three U.S. destroyers 
had to leave to escort an oiler. The multinational flotilla of cruisers and destroyers, most quite old and outdated to sail, well, they sailed out nonetheless. Most of the officers of the striking force had seen with their own eyes Japan's dominance in the air. Several times throughout February, Allied naval units were hit by airstrikes. As the force headed through the Floral Sea, towards Makassar Strait, they were actually spotted by Japanese airmen patrolling from Kendari, who pinpointed their location and relayed it back to the IGN. Rear Admiral Tsukahara Nishizio of the 11th Air Fleet launched 36 G4M Bettys and 24 G3M Injas to hit them. They found Dorman's force near the Kangian Islands, and from the get-go, they went right for the cruisers. They inflicted heavy punishment upon the USS Houston and Marblehead. Houston's aft turret was knocked out, and Marblehead was first hit forward and started a fire, then hit again aft on the quarterdeck, buckling the deck, wrecking the steering room, and jamming the rudder in a hard turn to port. She also had a near miss near the port bow, causing flooding. Fifteen of her crew were dead as she limped back towards Ceylon. By midday, Dorman realized his force was in some real trouble, so he made a retreat west back to Surabaya. His first operational command of the Abda striking force was a complete fiasco, but at least they had no ships sunk. As was typical throughout the entire war, the Japanese aviators reported three cruisers sunk despite this being completely inaccurate. A large problem facing the IGN during the Pacific War was inflated enemy casualty listings. Meanwhile, while mopping up operations on Abon had finally been completed, the IGN sent a fleet commanded by Admiral Takagi, departing from Kendari on February the 6th, taking with them a ton of Japanese marines eager for the conquest of Makassar. Because of Dorman's failure, the convoy was only hindered a bit by U.S. submarines, which did manage to sink the IGN destroyer Natsushio. The IGN landed the marines and completely overwhelmed the 1,000 Dutch soldiers led by Colonel Vorman. Most of the Dutch defenders simply fell back to fortifications at Tuyama or fled into the jungles to try their luck out with guerrilla warfare. By the dawn of February the 9th, Makassar had fallen to the Japanese. A small number of captured native troops were tied in groups of three and thrown into the river near Makassar to drown. With Makassar captured, all of the Celebs had fallen to the Japanese. The road was almost open to hit Java, but there still remained one rather large target, the airfield on Palembang on southern Sumatra. The last thing I want to talk about this week is some carrier action. Going back in time a bit, on January the 7th, Task Force 9, built around Enterprise, entered Pearl Harbor for some refueling. Her commander, Vice Admiral Halsey, planted himself at Nimitz conference table 
for a regular morning meeting at 8 a.m. on January the 8th. His understudy, Cruiser Commander Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance, was beside him. Halsey had been brought in to give his opinion on the proper use of aircraft carriers. Halsey quoted the Confederate Cavalry General Nathan Bedford Forrest, stating, quote, I think General Forrest's description is the best thing I know. To get the other fellow with everything you have and as fast as you can and to dump it on him. You have to scout out and find it. And as soon as you find it, send everything you can at him and hit him with it. End of quote. Halsey had also been proposing raids on the Marshall Islands around this time. He did so because he pointed out it might divert some attention away from Japan's southern drive, which was soon threatening the Coral Sea area, awfully close to Australia. Halsey said he would head the raids himself using Enterprise. Halsey is a very interesting admiral. He had a square face, thinning hair with huge eyebrows. Similar to General George S. Patton, he appeared to love war. He was a sailor's sailor, very popular with the crews he commanded. He would say, quote, As a general rule, I never trust a sailor man who doesn't smoke or drink. End of quote. Nimitz was relieved by all of his bravado, because the U.S. codebreakers were receiving reports of a Koryaku Bataille occupation force, aimed at Rabaul, on New Britain. On January the 9th, Nimitz gave the go for Halsey to raid under the guise it was a defensive mission and to help escort a convoy of troop ships going to Samoa. That convoy was already being escorted by Task Force 17 built around Yorktown and commanded by Admiral Fletcher. Halsey's Task Force 8 would go south and provide air cover and anti-submarine screens until the troop ships arrived safely. Once that was done, the two task forces would sail northwest for the Marshals. Enterprise was given Kwajalein, Willowlap, and Watje to hit in the heart of the Marshall Islands, while Yorktown got Mackin, Millie, and Jalut in the Gilbert Islands. The escort duty went alright, though there were frequent accidents aboard the ships with some pilots missing landings and such. On January the 23rd, the carrier task forces met up and began the process of crossing the international date line to reach their targets. They sailed in zigzagging tracks as a measure against enemy submarine forces. And on January the 28th, many of the ships, including Enterprise, fueled up from oil tankers at night, which was the bane of early aircraft operations. You see, refueling was difficult during the daytime, especially in heavy seas where there was a constant danger of collisions. This was actually the first time a carrier refueled at night, and a supreme test of the crew's seamanship. The Enterprise and oil tanker approached another near a parallel course at around 70 feet distance, each going about 10 knots. The captains had to maintain perfect steering and throttle control as heavy lines were tossed between the ships. 
Crews had to work in pure unison. The men holding the hoses were in constant danger of falling overboard between the two vessels, and destroyers stood by close for rescue just in case. Men with axes stood by at all times, just in case the hoses had to be cut down if an enemy was spotted. You definitely don't want to be attacked while refueling. Enterprise started this process around 8pm and would be done at 1.30am. One crewman noted, Somebody observed last night that it takes just about as long to get into battle as it did in 1812. End of quote. In many of our Kings and Generals videos, you get all the unit information, where battles occurred, casualty lists, etc, etc. But in such videos, it's hard to get into the nitty-gritty things like logistics, such as I just mentioned. Yet, for the Pacific War, they are really important matters. Later on, and I mean at some point between 1943 and 1945, I will go into a lot of depth about things like the CBs and other logistical aspects of the Pacific War. So I hope you enjoy more of the behind-the-scenes look at this war. On January the 27th, Nimitz had sent a coded radio message stating new orders to Halsey, authorizing the expansion of the raids. Nimitz ordered the raids to be, quote, driven home, with several airstrikes on prime targets and return strikes if necessary. Halsey's chief of staff, Miles Browning, urged for them to take the entire carrier group further west into the heart of the islands and hit Kwajalein very hard. It was certainly risky. The U.S. ships would be well in the range of counterattacks by air. Halsey was taking a gamble by approving the plan. It would require the initial wave of U.S. aircraft to achieve total surprise over the enemy airfields to work. Halsey remarked, It was one of those plans which are called brilliant if they succeed and foolhardy if they fail. One Enterprise pilot wrote of the event, Instead of just a hit-and-run raid, we were going to make an all-day-long attack. Admiral Halsey had decided to put the carrier within 20 or 30 miles of two big Jap airbases. The launches for the attack would be so close that we would get to work with plenty of gas. This suited us just fine. End of quote. On January the 31st, the Enterprise almost had a heart attack as its radar picked up a blip, which obviously was a Japanese patrol plane, but it flew 34 miles west of the force, not making contact nor any radio messages. At 6.30, on the night the task force separated, Spruins took his cruiser to bombard Watje and Tarawa in the south, while Enterprise and three destroyers took up a position north to hit Kwajalein, Watje, and Tarawa in order. The U.S. fleet had no accurate maps of the islands, and thus the pilots were hitting Japanese mystery islands, as they would say. 
They were relying on crude, photostatic prints of old charts dating back to the United States expeditions done in 1838 to 1842. The night before the strike, the pilots were informed the attack on Kwajalein would not include fighter escort because they simply did not have enough fighters on the carriers to fly CAP, that means Combat Air Patrol, and provide escorts for the bombers. Bomber pilot Clarence Dickinson wrote, On a raid, you want fighter escort. Whether they do much good or not, it is a psychological factor of tremendous importance to know they are there with you. You fly towards your objective a lot more eagerly if you know you have fighter protection. After all, the thing of first importance is to drop the bombs, not dogfight with zeros. End of quote. Well, this was Halsey's great moment. He had failed to hunt down Nagumo's Kidobutai right after Pearl Harbor. The nights before the raids, he could not sleep. He chain-smoked, drank coffee, and paced around the ship. On the morning of February the 1st, six F4F Wildcats took cap as 37 SBD Dauntless dive bombers took off to hit Roa the island airbase at the northern end of Kwajalein, and nine TBD Devastator torpedo bombers launched to hit ships anchored in the lagoon at Kwajalein's southern end. The two waves formed Vs and flew through a moonlit night. They made it over the northern part of the atoll just at dawn. Lieutenant Commander Halsteed pushed his nose down and began his approach with the 1st Division following his lead. They intended a glide bombing attack at a 45 degree angle. Halsteed dropped his 500 pound bomb, the first US bomb of the war to be dropped on a Japanese held territory, just as Nakajima Type 97 Kates clipped his tail and simultaneously anti-aircraft fire broke out hitting him with flak. His aircraft literally blew apart and spun into the lagoon. Three more SBDs were hit with flak and fighter fire, but scored several well-aimed hits on the buildings on the ground. Some SBDs even managed to shoot down two to three Japanese fighters on their way back up. The second division of SBDs charged in a bit faster, seeing the enemy was now alert, gassing to about 300 knots, and saw their bombs smash and explode hangars along the airstrip. Although the Japanese anti-aircraft gunners were fully awake and frantically firing, the SBDs flew through their flak with a lot of ease. The US pilots looked down seeing Japanese fighters scrambling to lift off the field. Lieutenant Dickinson dived low over the field and dropped two 100-pound bombs on the buildings right beside the airstrip. One of those bombs hit an ammunition dump forming a secondary explosion that was so immense it churned a fireball thousands of feet into the sky. Dickinson's called it, quote, One of the most glorious fireworks shows I had ever seen. All over the island, there was an extravagant flowering of flame. Great white and pinkish streaked fire shapes bloomed profusely each for just an instant. But these became unimportant 
as the bombs went off. In big flush flashes, two and two and two each time, another plane glided in. End of quote. After dropping their loads, the SBDs swung around again to strafe, to which Dixon said it was like, quote, An eccentric rain of dark red slanting lines. End of quote. The strafing shredded parked planes and cut down men running across the airfield. Dickinson even saw one man on a bicycle pedaling across the causeway connecting Tamur Island to Roa Island, as one SBD pilot strafed him. Dickinson wrote of this, Probably in the history of wheeling, no bicycle has ever been pedaled more furiously than that one. Crossing the trestle ahead of the red-hot whip lashes of U.S. bullets. But with a frog-like jump for the water, the Jap defaulted the race. End of quote. Now having dropped their payloads, the SBDs made their escape, being chased by flak and Japanese fighters. Their rear-seat gunners pelted the Japanese fighters to beat them off. Luckily, these were not Zero Fighters, but the older Nakajima Ki-27 Knights, of which one was shot down during the escape. The smashing of Roa was a major success. Three enemy fighters were shot down, seven bombers were hit on the ground, two aircraft hangars were completely leveled, and a field tank blew up, also with its ammunition storage unit, going up like the 4th of July. The Devastators, meanwhile, arrived over the anchorage, where Lieutenant Commander Eugene Lindsay radioed in that there were, quote, suitable objectives at Quagiline. Air Group Commander Howard Young circled over Roa, relayed the report to several SPDs that they should preserve their 500-pound bombs and come join the Devastators down south. Halsey heard the message and ordered nine more torpedo planes he had in reserve to join them. The SPD's flight south was slow because they had to dive low over Roa, and thus they had to climb back up to get in attack positions. When they arrived, they saw around 20 Japanese ships, including a pair of heavy cruisers and three to four submarines. They could see heavy black smoke with some of the ships listing, obviously, the previous Devastators had punched some holes in them, and now some of the ships were firing anti-aircraft guns. The SBDs made their dives at 70 degree angles, through flak bursts. Their 500 pound bombs smashed into some ships, and into the water around the ships, creating large geysers. About an hour later, the nine reserve Devastators showed up, flying right through the flak, and dropped their torpedoes smashing into two oil tankers and a 17,000-ton ocean liner. One cruiser made a dash for open sea, but was hit by two torpedoes halting her. Several other ships were torpedoed and bombed, but the U.S. pilots would grossly overestimate the actual damage done. In all, they had sunk a transport and a sub-chaser, damaged around nine other ships, including the cruiser Katori. 18 planes had been damaged or destroyed, and 90 Japanese were killed, including Rear Admiral Yukichi Yashiro. 
the Devastators and Dauntless left unchased. Over at Wotji and Tarawa, 12 F4F Wildcats had been ordered to serve as short-range bombers, carrying 100-pound bombs. Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey took six Wildcats to hit Wotje, and Lieutenant James Gray took another six to hit Tarawa. McCluskey's group climbed 10,000 feet and descended over Wotje, aiming their loads at small airstrips. They dropped their bombs and circled around to strafe as the base began to certainly wake up and sent flak their way. Fortunately, there were no fighters in the air, and thus none of the Wildcats were lost. McCluskey assessed the damage as they made their escape. Several buildings were on fire. Then, on schedule, Admiral Spruance's cruiser Northampton, the Salt Lake City, and destroyer Dunlap showed up. The three ships formed a battle line position, and at 7.15 a.m. opened fire on a pair of merchant ships anchored in Wache's Lagoon. Japanese ships scrambled to flee the anchorage as the shore guns began to open fire on the U.S. warships. The artillery duel began between shore batteries and Spruance's force as he stood erect on his bridge, observing the enemy's salvos and allegedly not flinching when members of his staff ducked for cover. His cruisers scored some hits on buildings on Wache, producing smoke clouds and flames. Spruance remained engaged for almost three hours, suffering not a single hit to any of his ships. Shortly before 10 a.m., they sortied back to meet up with Enterprise. Lieutenant Gray's group, further south, sought to hit Tarawa, but actually misidentified another island called Tian for it and hit the wrong target. They soon figured out their error during the bombing runs and told the other Wildcats to go southeast. Over Tarawa, they found a substantial airbase with two runways and half a dozen hangars. Several Nels were parked along those runways. Captain Thomas Sock's ship began to bombard the island, turning it into a hornet's nest. Three Japanese fighters managed to take off just as the Wildcats arrived, rising up to meet them. Gray led the force to dive-bomb the Nels parked on the ground, because he knew those were the threat to Enterprise if not taken out. The Wildcats dived very low to bomb and strafe the Nels and the airfield. The Japanese A5M4 clothes gave heavy pursuit. One was shot right through its belly by Lieutenant Rawi. Some crew aboard the Chester saw this and remarked, quote, one speck-like plane expanded magically into a ball of flame and plunged into the palms, leaving a hot red streak about it. End of quote. This was to be the first recorded kill of the war by an American Navy fighter pilot. Gray's Wildcat made a frontal attack on a Claude and actually made a glancing collision with the Claude. But the Grumman-made plane remained in the air, while the more fragile Mitsubishi-made plane had to circle back to the airstrip. On the ground, Japanese crews tried to get their fighters and bombers to take off to hit the Chester and her two accompanying destroyers. The U.S. warships bombarded the airbase for 25 minutes, blowing craters into the airstrip and setting buildings on fire. 
When the inbound aircraft came, the Chester tried to outmaneuver, but one of the Injas planted a bomb on her stern, blowing a hole in her deck, and killed eight crew. Captain Sox signaled a withdrawal east after this. Wildcats were at the point of tears, their machine guns were all jamming, which had been a reoccurring problem with Wildcats. Most then had to make their escape, back ridden with bullet holes. Despite being hit up, the Wildcat armor proved formidable. The US pilots reported that only one of Tarawa's nine Nell bombers had been destroyed, however. Halsey was gravely concerned and wanted bombers to go knock them out, thus the base had to be hit again. The SBDs that had hit Quagiline and had returned were ordered to do the job. Lieutenant Commander Bill Hollingsworth led the formation and noted, quote, The attack encountered no aerial opposition, but there was heavy anti-aircraft fire. The Enterprise Action Report of the attack also reported, A fuel tank, two hangars, and a radio station Four or five two-engine bombers and several fighters are known to have been destroyed on this attack. End of quote. None of the SPDs were lost. Then a third strike was made, commanded by Lieutenant Richard Best, which smashed a radio's installation, several fuel tanks, and left the administration buildings in rubble. Then a fourth strike left Enterprise at 11.22 a.m. to hit Watje again. Eight SPD and nine Devastators, commanded by Howard Young, found no Japanese fighter opposition, and thus were able to take their time hitting the airfield. What had begun as a quick hit-and-run raid now developed into a nine-hour bombing operation in which planes smashed targets, returned, refueled, rearmed, and went right back out to smash some more. All the while, Wildcats remained performing cap, just in case. Men kept their eyes peeled for Japanese aircraft, waiting to hear the loudspeakers blaze incoming alerts. By 1 p.m., Lieutenant Commander Hollingsworth asked Halsey, quote, Admiral, don't you think it's time we got the hell out of here? Halsey replied, I've been thinking the same thing myself. End of quote. Thus, at 1.22 p.m., the entire task force made its escape. The Japanese had been caught by surprise and would receive bitter criticism for the raids. As Tarawa licked its wounds, five undamaged Nell bombers lifted off to hunt the U.S. carrier. The strike team was led by Lieutenant Kazuo Nakei, and they searched fruitlessly for 90 minutes, but then, at 1.30pm, they caught sight of the fleeing Enterprise. Nakei put his nose down in a shallow dive, followed by his team in a V formation. The Wildcat Cap quickly intercepted the bombers at 10,000 feet. The bombers were only 15 miles away from Enterprise, doing their best to remain hidden in some clouds. Before the Wildcats could engage, the screening ship's anti-aircraft fire began to fire, forcing the Wildcats to shear off a bit. 
The five Nels dived through the clouds at 6,000 feet towards the starboard bow of Enterprise at 250 knots. Enterprise's anti-aircraft guns began to open fire as one crew member recalled, The noise sounded terrific in the steel walls of the ready room, as it might on the inside of a thunderbolt. The ship shook each time a bigger gun was fired. We had smaller guns that went off with a crack and plenty of machine guns to fill any chinks in the tumult. End of quote. The carrier and her escorts tossed flak into the air, which appeared well behind the rapidly incoming Nels. Captain George Murray on Enterprise noted the ineffectiveness of the anti-aircraft gunfire as a, quote, matter of grave concern. As the aircraft got even closer, the 1.1-inch guns on the catwalks opened up, but all five of the Nels charged on their bombing tracks at 3,000 feet. Their bomb bay doors were open, showing off their 100-kilogram bombs. I think that's about 223 pounds for you Americans. Captain Murray, watching the bombs fall, called for a full power at 30 knots to hard turn to port but then ordered an ingenious maneuver and switched for full reverse rudders to starboard. This made, quote, In effect, the ship was on its forward speed, being checked at the same time the ship was suddenly moved sideways out of its own track. End of quote. Thus, the Enterprise did a crab walk, and the bombs smashed into the water, some as close as only 30 feet away. Even though they missed, the shrapnel smashed into gasoline lines on the ship, starting fires all over the flight deck. Yet as the Nels pulled out of their dives, scarcely 1,500 feet about the sea, one of them banked left and came roaring back towards the Enterprise. It was flight leader Lieutenant Nake whose plane had been hit with a ton of flak. Nake judged his plane was mortally wounded and could not make it back to Tarawa. He approached from Enterprise's astern, trying to smash into it. Bruno P. Guado, an aviation machinist, ran from his action station and slid into the rear seat of a parked Dauntless. He seized the gun and began to fire upon the Nell as Captain Murray ordered a hard turn to starboard. Guado kept firing into the nose and cockpit of the Nell, most likely killing Nakei. The Nell seemed not to maneuver at all in the last stage of its attack. Its wing struck a glancing blow over the port side of the flight deck, ripping a parked SBD in half and went straight into the sea. Halsey watching from his flag bridge told his staff, quote, Boys, my knees are cracking together. End of quote. The Enterprise continued her escape at 30 knots and someone coined the phrase, Haul ass with Halsey, which soon became the Haul ass with Halsey Club. They were not out of the fray just yet as at 4 p.m. two more inches showed up at an altitude of 14,000 feet. The Wildcat Caps quickly pounced on them, 
get it because because they're cats anyways the wildcats and anti-aircraft guns batter them the two inches drop their 500 pound bombs both missing later as the sun dropped the wildcat cap chased off a japanese jake float plane and for the rest of the trip it was uneventful Meanwhile, the Yorktown and Task Force 17 launched attacks against the Jalut and Millie of the Marshall Islands and the Makin Island in the Gilberts. The raids did not encounter significant resistance, and the results were a little meager. At Jalut, 11 torpedo planes and 17 dive bombers hit up some auxiliary ships anchored, damaging about two ships. The weather was so incredibly bad that rather than enemy resistance, it was the weather that claimed six US planes, which fell into the sea on their return flights. At Makin, nine dive bombers hit a mine lair and two Kawanishi flying boats. The attack on Maile was a bust. No targets were found. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some history-related content, please go check my personal channel out at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. On February the 5th, the Enterprise made it back to Pearl Harbor, where Admiral Nimitz alongside an entourage awaited Halsey on the docks and said, Bill, it was wonderful. A great job. Halsey, overcome, broke down in tears. A victory for the Allies, while the Japanese consolidated their campaign against the Dutch East Indies and Bataan. Joy and celebrations would be had, but not for long.